and 18. And if you don't have a Bible, it would be helpful for you to just grab the, the blue Bible there in front of you, page uh, 59. So I'll let you find that Exodus 17 and 18, Genesis, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, about the exit that God's people made out of Egypt into the wilderness and then eventually into the promised land. And once you find that, then turn to Romans chapter 16, which we'll reference towards the end of the sermon. And just however you put a finger there, put a marker there, I believe that's 944, which we won't be reading from until we get to that point in the sermon. I'm going to read several verses here out of 17 and 18, so I'll just let you remain seated. But you follow, follow along, 17, verse 8. Through 13, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then looking at chapter 18, beginning with verse 6, 18, verse 6. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of the welfare and went into the tent. And then Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat the bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw that all that was do- he was doing for the people, he said, What is this? That you are doing for the people. Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' Moses's father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. 
for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from whom all the people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all his people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. This morning, I have uh, three goals in mind, so it might be a little bit different than normal, but I want to tell you what they are. First, I want to use these texts that we've read to show you the value God puts on working together as a team. So often when you read the Bible or you just think about Bible stories, you think about sort of the main character like Moses or the Apostle Paul or a number of other people. But frequently you forget that they have a bunch of people around them. Sometimes you know their names that we'll learn some here. Sometimes they're just names you never know. But they're, they're always involved in a team effort. And so I wanna, want us to just notice the value that God puts on being a team, being forged together as a team as we walk through this life. Uh, the second thing I'm trying to do this morning is I'm trying to say thank you. We we think of our year at Christ Community Church kind of starting with the school year and ending with the school year. And so this is a graduation weekend for public high school. And it's the last Sunday we have Sunday school with all the teachers in the classrooms. And we take a break over the summer. And, and the community groups usually take a break during the summer. So I, I want this to be part of my goal is just to say thank you to all of you all who taken responsibility for something this year. And and really gotten your shoulder underneath the wheel and, and carried some heavy weight. So thank you for that. Second, the third thing I want to do is I want to encourage you to consider what team you're going to be on next year. So you have a, maybe eight weeks here, ten weeks of the summer to think about, okay, what, what am I doing at Christ Community Church or within the Christian community? What, 
what kind of team am I on? What, what, are, what am I part of trying to make something move forward or minister to other people? So those are the three things I'm, I'm trying to do. And I want to uh, start by just showing a quick video. It seems a little longer than two minutes, and you'll see why in just a minute. But I showed this at the men's leadership, iron leadership, and I knew when I saw it, I thought, i got to show this to everybody here because it's so funny. Uh, but it, 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 it has a good application in terms of being on a team because being on a team really helps you go farther and faster than you could just go on your own. Now, I know sometimes you feel like if I didn't have the team, I could really move forward. But in the end, you, you just can't get as far and you can't get it, get it, get, go as fast if you don't have other people helping you out. So this little video about the difference between uh, a pit stop in 1950, if you're an Indianapolis car driver, and a pit stop today helps you to see the value of a team. So we'll watch this and we'll talk, comment about it. But Holland comes in for a pit stop. Time to refuel and change tires. Lou Moore himself changes the tires. Only four crew members, including the driver, are allowed to work on the car. It's a tense time. Holland stays in his seat, anxious to get away. Let's watch. Tires are changed at last. A crewman polishes the windshield as Holland moves away just 67 seconds after he stops. I mean, don't you love that? I mean, wasn't the first 67 seconds seem like like a week? The poor guy with a hammer, you know, on the wheel, I was like, good grief. Well, you know, you you just can't get very far if you don't have a team. Now, maybe a team of four can't get what, what, how many 85 people around in that car at the end? Uh, but but God has his design to be a part of a team. I think you see that just as a hint of that in the Trinity. But when you see the Bible, when you see the people in the Bible, it's not just a person that stands out like Moses or, 
or Paul or David or Abraham or a number of other people, there's always a group of people around that are helping out. And again, sometimes you know their names and sometimes you don't know their names. But I just want us to use this passage today to look at the different people that God uses to, to make things move forward at a, a much greater speed and, and I think with a lot more joy. So Exodus chapter 17, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, story here. God, God has already uh, led the, the, the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, now just three chapters later, they find their, themselves in the first battle that they encounter in the wilderness, and they're against the Amalekites. These are the bad guys. These are the stormtroopers, if that's the way you want to think about them. And the, the strategy the Amalekites had is because Moses had led hundreds of thousands of people across the Red Sea, that they didn't all form in a ball. They sort of formed in a string. And, and towards the end of the line, you might imagine, are sort of the weak, the elderly, the stragglers. And the Amalekite strategy is we'll just pick off the people at the end and plunder their goods and run away. We don't want to mess with the leaders. We want to just get the back end. And we'll just constantly sort of hound the Israelites as they wander around the deserts. And so this is how they were described in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what the Amalekites did to you when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they attacked you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. And they had no fear of God. And so Moses has a a plan of his own. He has a strategy of his own. And we see what his strategy is. He he has a counterattack. We see it beginning in verse 9. It's it's a beautiful picture of teamwork. The first thing he says is, okay, Joshua. Joshua is like the military general. He's the one that leads them into the promised land. You've got to get some men. Choose like a special forces unit. And you're going to go out. and, And at this particular location, Rephidim, you're going to fight for us. Your, your special unit is going to attack the Malachites. So that's one, per, one team, Joshua and his special forces unit. And then notice what Moses does. He takes two people, Aaron and her, and they're going to go at, sort of on top of a mountain. It's, it's a valley, and so he gets on top of the mountain to see what's happening. And he takes these two people with him, and the fight begins. And so when I think about this passage here, I first think about Joshua and, and his special forces units. These are the people who are directly engaged in the battle. They're, they're the front-line people. It's hand-to-hand combat. And, and I want to thank especially those who were in the nursery and in the children's ministry and in the tutoring ministry. That, that's front-line. I mean, you get here early on Sundays. Very few people know it. Parents drop their kids off, and and, and you're you're there. You're you're hand to hand, not hand to hand combat with a second grader. I don't. If you're a visitor, you you understand what I'm getting at. We're not battling up there, but you understand when when you have. I can't remember uh, Sharon. It was seventy or eighty students come for the tutoring thing on uh, or our tutoring program on Wednesdays. That's a lot of people. We've got to have a lot of units come in to, to, to try to be crowd control, to try to help the people, help these, these kids learn, help them to understand who Jesus is. So, so thank you. Thank you for being part of that special forces unit. 
We, we know Joshua. We don't know any other name. But Joshua was there with a team. And then there's another team. You know the team Moses and, and, and his two friends, Aaron and Hur. They're up on a mountain. They form sort of a, another kind of team. And, and the strategy here was this staff that Moses had used to part the Red Sea, lifts up the staff and the sea parts. He's now lifting up the staff. And as the staff is lifted up, that Joshua and his team prevails. But as you imagine, his arms get tired. And so he begins to take a break. And every time he's taking a break, uh, the Amalekites seem to uh, overwhelm Joshua and his team. So, so thankfully, Aaron and her, he's got a team there with him. They find him a place to sit, and then they each get on. What a great picture. They each get on a side, and they hold up Moses' arm. So he's sitting down, and they're holding up the arm, and, and Joshua ends, ends up winning the battle. And so I think this is a great picture of just people who are involved in prayer. A lot of commentators say this picture is, a picture of, of Moses in prayer. As, as he's lifting up the staff to the Lord, as he's praying to the Lord, the battle advances. But when prayer goes down, what happens? The battle starts getting lost. And I think about the staff every week praying for the, the prayer requests that come in. I think about the elders. We get together once a month, and, and they follow up with you in prayer. I think of all the little times elders, I've seen elders with people praying. You know, it's, it's sort of behind the scenes. It's not the front line. And, and then when the staff and the elders get tired, there are other staff and elders there to say, no, let, let us remember prayer. Let's get back to prayer. Let's remember that's we're going to have the most success when we put prayer at the top. So, so thank you. Thank you for all of those who spent time praying. Nobody really saw it. Didn't, didn't seem to accomplish anything right at the moment. But it's a critical part of the strategy. And it takes a team effort. It's not just one person. Such a beautiful picture of, of teamwork. Now, when I did this study, um, we had a little bit more time in the Iron Leadership. I asked this question because it was curious to me. But turn back with me in Exodus chapter 14, just a couple of pages back. Exodus 14, verse 10. Now here, Moses is at the, uh, the edge of the Red Sea. And the, the Egyptians are coming after him. Sort of think of the Amalekites are coming after them. But in this particular instance, uh, God instructs Moses, hey, you don't need to fight. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, as you can imagine. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. I mean, if you're Moses, you're like, okay, I'm going to leave you alone. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. As Moses said to the people, fear not. I mean, what a great leader moment here. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So I just asked this question. This is more of a theological aside rather than a part of the team. Why in Exodus 14 did God say, just be still, and I'm going to fight? And three chapters later, we've got another army, and he says, hey, you've got to fight. And I think it's a picture of the difference between salvation and sanctification. Sometimes it might be said justification and sanctification. Who's going to save people from slavery? Only God can do that. You cannot fight your way out of sin. Somebody has to pay the price for you. And so God says at this moment to get you out of Egypt, out of slavery, and towards the promised land, out of darkness and into light, there's only one person who can fight for you, and that's me, and you just stand still, and it's by grace alone. Now, now that you're over here, you've been saved, you're in a process that's called sanctification. And on this process, you've got to fight. To, to become more like Christ, you've got to fight, and it takes a team effort. So he's already instructing the people, this is how you're going to live. In terms of salvation, it's, it's a one-way transaction. God does all the fighting. Amen? But then once that happens, you've got to fight. And I think he's saying, you guys, you've got to learn how to fight. You've got to fight against the enemies that are going to come at you now that you're known as the people of God. Well, that's a little theological aside. But I just want us to know that here it takes a team effort. You and I, we're on a journey. We're not on a journey out of Egypt into the promised land. We're out of sin and we're moving towards the promised land of heaven. And we're in this middle passage, this middle stage here. And it takes a team to get us from where we are to, to the finish line. And so we're talking about that. We see this in Exodus chapter 17. God's already trying to form a team. It's not just Moses and God. It's Moses and his team who's bringing these people into the promised land. Now let's look at Exodus chapter 18. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. And at some point, we don't know exactly when, after Moses had crossed over into uh, the wilderness, he sent his wife and his two boys back to his father-in-law's house. And I just get the feeling the father-in-law is like, yep, I've had enough time with my, my daughter and her two sons, so I'm going to bring them back. I mean, I had my time of being a dad, so, you know, I had a good time with my two grandkids, but time to bring them on back to Moses. And so he brings back the wife, his, his daughter and Moses' wife and, and the two kids. And the first thing I want you to notice in verse 9 is that, that Jethro comes in and he first he just notices what God has done. And Moses tells him what's God, what is God has done. And, and, and Jethro's first impulse, and I love this guy for this, his first impulse is to rejoice. Not everything's been accomplished that needs to be accomplished. 
Moses is going to get some pretty strict um, instructions from Jethro in a few verses. But the first thing Jethro does is, I want to just rejoice on what God has done. I want to rejoice on how God has worked in your life. I want to rejoice that this has happened. And I'm just wondering, if you're part of a team, is that your first impulse? Is to rejoice. Maybe it's just a team of a husband and wife. Maybe it's a team of a family. Maybe it's a, a team at, at work. Maybe it's a team at church. You know, you can always walk in and say, there's lots of things to work on. That's not hard to do. But is your first impulse to be like Jethro, the first thing I want to do is I want to rejoice. It's really not very much fun to be on a team with a person whose first impulse is to criticize. When that person walks in, you go, oh, just weight drops on your shoulders. Because they may be pointing out things that are true that do need to be fixed. But their first impulse is just to, to be critical. I've used this illustration before. And I think it's just so funny. It's a, a Peanuts, you know, Charlie Brown co- comic strip. And if you can remember, Linus has got an older sister named Lucy. You know, Linus, the one with the blanket, kind of insecure. And he's sitting in a chair reading his book with a blanket. And Lucy, in the next phrase, is she's sort of standing behind Linus, just examining Linus. And she says, it's very strange. It happens just by looking at you. And Linus says, what happens? I can feel... I can feel a criticism coming on. (laughs) And I wonder if that's what you're like on your team. You you come in and you just feel a criticism coming on. I love Jethro. He's an older guy. He he knows there's problems here. But the first is first impulse. I want to rejoice. I want to celebrate what God has done. I want you to be that kind of person on your team. Now, in verse 13, the next day, we get to the next day, uh, this is what happens. He makes these observations. He He watches Moses standing around from morning till evening. And just notice he's just watching what happens. And he says, you know, what you're doing isn't good for the people. You're sitting alone. You're, you're here from morning till evening. You're, you're wearing the people out, trying to figure out these disputes and teach the laws. And so you've got to find some people here who can do some of the work with you. The, the tough, you take the tougher cases, but so many of these things somebody else can step up and lead. And so I just want to point out a couple of obvious things here. First of all, Moses was completely unaware of his need. Or he felt boxed in. I see there's a need, but I can't seem to get out of it. So maybe he doesn't know there's a need, or he knows there's a need and there doesn't seem to be any way out. At least we can say for sure Moses has blind spots. And if he's not a part of a team... Nobody's going to help him see those blind spots. So one great value in being as a team, no matter how great a leader you are like Moses, somebody else can come in and say, yeah, but you just don't see this about yourself. You can get much further along with a team helping you out than just being ruined by your own blind spots. Second thing, not not only blind spots, there's a bottleneck. 
you know, Moses has a, a fighting force, but he has, doesn't have a go- governing force. So everything comes to sort of a screeching halt because Moses has to make every decision. I mean, imagine in the, in the video, if the guy in the first car in 1950, if he had to get out and change all the tires all by himself. I mean, it was, it was painful enough with four people. Imagine if it was just a solo. I get out of the car, I do all the tires, and I get back in. That'd take forever. And I wonder how many of you are operating that way. How much, you know, you know there, I think there were 20 or 21 people in the second pit stop. And I think, you know, it was 67 seconds in the first one, two seconds in the second. So you can get so much further, so much faster with a team. Team helping you out, you helping other people out. And then you know the people had to say, hey, this is dysfunctional. I mean, I've been here all day standing in line trying to get this dispute. You know there had to be some kind of grumbling in the ranks. This just, when, when I picture this, this is like a, a, de- a bad day at the DMV. I mean, just, you walk in and, you know, you're 25 down the line, and a bunch of people are, look like they're working, but there's only one person calling numbers. You know, and you're like, oh, no, I'm going to be here all day to renew my license. So this is what's happening. Moses can't see it. He's a bottleneck. People are beginning to grumble because they're worn out. And Jethro shows up. And this is such a refreshing person. Why? Because he's not in any way intimidated by Moses. Now, now the farther up you get in the leadership chain, the harder it is to get somebody who can really speak to you. So Moses, he's at the top. But thankfully, as a father-in-law, not intimidated. Loves Moses, not intimidated by Moses. And very clear. I love this about Jethro. He's, he's not in any way trying to be political. He's just trying to identify the facts. Verse 14, what, why do you sit alone? 17, what you're doing is not good. 18, you're wearing everyone out. It's too heavy. Verse 19, now listen and imagine you being Moses. Obey my voice. I hope you have somebody that can speak to you this clearly. Somebody on your team. They're not trying to beat around the bush. You know that they love you, so they don't have to say, I love you, every time they give you a corrective. Now, Moses' initial response, verse 15 and 16 the people come to me, I decide, I make known. Now, you, we don't have any idea what the tone is here. But it just feels a little bit like I'm indispensable. One commentary, oh, how subtle are the inner dynamics that allow us to become caught in a pace of life that is unlivable. How desperately we need a Jethro in our lives to point out that there is another way. And I bet there are several people here that live an unlivable pace. I've been on that. And you need somebody to say, it's just not sustainable. I don't care how critical you think you are to your equation of your family or your business or your community or your church or your job. When you leave, guess what? Somebody else is going to fill that up. So you've got to live at a different kind of pace 
And you don't know that if you don't have a team, if you don't have somebody like Jethro to come in and help you out. So Moses can't seem to figure out how to do something different. So again, I love Jethro. He just comes right in. I hear so what you're going to do, Moses. First of all, first of all, you want to find capable men. And notice the two qualifications. I could do a whole sermon here, but I won't. They have to fear God and hate bribes. They have to fear God and they can't fear men. What a, what a great character quality for men. Somebody who fears God and doesn't fear mankind. Second thing we want to see here about Moses' response, his second response after he talks about how he, he's critical to the equation. Verse 40, 24, it's a critical verse. Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did everything that he said. Wow. I mean, if I had been Moses, this may be exposing. But I would have just been tempted to say, you know, Jethro, I just parted the Red Sea, bud. So off my back. I mean, who are you to be giving me advice? I mean, were you there with any of the plagues or anything? I didn't see you around, bud. But, but Moses... Later, later in the Bible, God calls Moses the most humble man ever to walk the earth. And here you see an example of it. You see this guy who's been at the top, and he says, you know what? You're right. This isn't sustainable. I've got to do something else. Thank you for coming in and saying, thank you for being a part of my team. And then Moses did something very, very important. He gave away responsibility. And I want to say thank you to the countless number of people here who I've given away or elders have given away or the staff have given away responsibility and you've taken the responsibility. I have had, in the last year, I've had hundreds of conversations with many of you about some issue, some problem, some person, some challenge, some difficulty, some pain. And you're trying to take responsibility for helping someone to, to speak truth, to encourage, to, to exhort. It, it's, it, it would be impossible for me or even the elders to do it all. Many of you have taken big swaths of responsibility. And I want you to hear me say thank you. Thank you for doing that. Finally, I want us to just turn to Romans chapter 16 and we'll conclude here. Romans 16. If you ever did any kind of search, internet search, on most important or most popular, most significant chapters of the Bible, probably in every top five or certainly in every top ten list would be Romans 8. The great eight, sometimes they call it. It's got so much packed in one chapter. It's it's definitely a great 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 chapter there is therefore now no condemnation i mean just that one opening verse you can stand up and shout about that god's working together for good he's got this golden chain you know those he has predestined he's called those he's called he's justified those he's justified he's glorified and you just think God, what a great thing and then ends you know neither death nor life nor angels nor anything in all creation can separate you from the love of god it's just such a great chapter 
But I, I was wondering recently, what, what would be the Apostle Paul's favorite chapter? I mean, maybe our favorite chapter is eight, but if you talk to Paul, what would his favorite chapter be? And I would suggest it might be chapter 16. Now, in chapter 16, if you go through a Bible reading plan, you pretty much just breeze. You don't really read every word. I know you don't. You just kind of, okay, bunch of names, blah, 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 get to the end. Let's just move on to the next chapter. But I'm guessing the Apostle Paul would have stopped and said, no, 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 don't go by this chapter. It's so critical. And we're not going to read the whole thing. I just want you to notice why this is so important, because this is Paul's team. You and I know a lot of about the Apostle Paul. We probably know almost nothing about the, the names in, the, in, verse, in chapter 16. But Paul knows them. Verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. What do they do? They risked their necks for my life. I bet Paul would want to stop and, and, and say something about that. Verse 5, greet my beloved Epinatus. The first convert in Asia. How would you like to be the first convert in a continent? <laughs> greet Mary, who worked hard for you, verse 6. Verse 7, greet Androconus and Junia, my fellow prisoners. Verse 12, greet the beloved Persisus, who worked hard in the Lord. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother has been a mother to me. See, I bet Paul didn't breeze through chapter 16. This was his team. These were the people that made Paul go further and faster than he could have ever done it on his own. And when I leave Christ Community Church, my hope is I know a lot more about the Bible. I'm sure that's going to happen because that has already happened. And I'm going to be thankful for all the theological truths I've been able to understand and unearth because I've had to proclaim them to you. So I'm going to have my sort of favorite Bible verses or, or favorite theological uh, pieces or favorite pieces of doctrine. I'm going to have those chapters in my life. But you know what? I'm going to have another chapter that's going to have a bunch of your names in it. And I'm going to remember, yeah, we, we, we did that together. Remember that year we did this? Remember that ministry that got started? Remember when we were in this group together? I'm going to have that chapter. And that chapter is going to be like gold to me. And here's my encouragement for you over the summer. I want you, when you leave Christ Community Church, I desperately want you to know more about the Bible. That's why I do what I do. But I want you to have your own chapter with your own teams in it, your own names. So my question, my, my exhortation, my challenge is, what, what team are you on? Or just, you just come, you sit, you leave. You're excited about Christ Community Church. You're just not on a team. Well, whose arm is, are you holding up? What, what frontline ministry are you involved in? What, what if a year from now you'd look back and say, well, yeah, we, we went through this Bible and it was great, 
But I, I never was, I never got to know anybody. I never got on a team. I never went out and, and took any risk. I, I didn't do any of that. I don't want that to happen one more year. I want you to be on a team. And you remember the small group study you did, the sermon series, but you have names. You start having names that are part of your last chapter. You and I have to be on a team. We can get so much further, so much faster together, working on you internally and doing what God wants us to do externally. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful.